Hi, I'm Krishna Mander, and I beat the often path by building smart motorcycle helmet technology. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. On the show, we celebrate unique and inspiring success stories to help us think outside the box in our lives and careers. Joining me today is Krishna Manda, the co-founder and CEO of Etho Inc., a startup building augmented reality hardware and software for motorcycle helmets, including a voice assistant, navigation, and riding information displayed right on the inside of your helmet. It's super cool so that you can keep your eyes on the road as you ride. With 68% of daily commuters admitting to using their phones to navigate to places, these kinds of distractions can be fatal on motorcycles, where every second and every reaction counts. Learn how a life-changing accident set this aerospace engineer on the path to creating a revolutionary product. So here's Krishna Manda, CEO of Etho Inc. All right, motorcycles, very safe, very fun, very easy to ride. <laughs> As somebody who's been in one serious motorcycle accident in my entire life, uh, what is it about the appeal of motorcycles? <laughs> what is it about this genre that attracted you? So um, I was always a speed uh, freak per se uh, since I was a kid or more or less driving freak. It, it wasn't necessarily um, with uh, going fast, but just going uh, uh, anywhere. Um, my family never actually, uh, owned a vehicle of our own until quite like until my fifth grade, um, uh, a vehicle meaning a car, uh, up until that point, we, my dad had his own, um, work vehicle, which is uh, a police, uh, officer's car. Uh, in India, which was pretty fun to to get around uh, town, and and when he didn't use his work vehicle, it was his motorcycle. So that's where my earliest memory started with. Um, and I remember when I was like really really young, I, I uh, it was sort of a rainy night, um, just starting to drizzle, and there was a train right by the side, and I asked my dad, "Hey, can you can you race that train?" And then he did, and and we were like going at it, and and that was one of the most surreal moments. So that that was, I would say, that's where my love for motorcycles kicked off. I get it. I didn't uh, get introduced to motorcycles until, well, probably about ten years ago. A friend, a couple friends of mine, got really into it. They bought motorcycles, and they let me ride them. And I quickly realized how addicting this thing is because you go, and it's just, it's like flying. You're going so 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 fast. And I enjoyed it, but also you have that crazy, scary feeling when you're going fast of that this can't be good. The first time I got onto a highway, I was thinking, this I don't know about this. It's really <laughs> fun. Maybe too much fun. Maybe this is what heroin is like. That was what I thought. Um, but of course, ironically enough, or this is actually a good story. So <clears throat> I was trying to get my motorcycle license. I was okay. trying to get my motorcycle license and I was practicing for the test and I was pretty good. So it's going to sound so stupid, but I'm just going to say it anyways. So practicing for the test in the lot, they've got this little course in America. This is in Colorado somewhere. And I'm doing the course and there's, you do all these things. You weave, you do a turn, you do start, stop, whatever. And you get to the last one. And I can't remember what it is, but it's something like you go around a cone and then you go and then you have to stop. But it was involving sort of turning and stopping at the same time. And I did the classic mistake where I, I hit the, the front brake too hard. So I flipped oh. over the handlebars. And I would have been totally fine. I mean, it was a horrible wreck. I would have been completely fine. I had all the gear on, except I rolled around and I trapped my thumb between, I hit the ground and I, oh, I shattered my, my thumb. Yeah. And, and to this day, I lost all of the, uh, the, the tendon in my thumb joints. It's, it's, they call it skier's thumb. I didn't know that. I thought it was broken. I didn't know the tendon was gone. But so that's an injury that I have to live with uh, the rest of my life, apparently. 
And then after that, the appeal. But of course, like this was far away from where I was going, so I had to ride that bike home. <laughs> the next like forty five <laughs> minutes with just like one arm. Just, uh, so uh, that was sort of the last time that I rode motorcycles. <laughs> it was like a very oh, quick shoot. journey. But I, <laughs> oh, I, I, I gather. I know it's so stupid, but I gather you have a probably a much cooler story, but a similar story to how you got interested in some of the stuff you did, right? So this this is this is gonna sound uh, quite crazy, but basically um, in 2016 December, there's this. I use T-Mobile, so uh, if T-Mobile sponsors you, great. Yeah, that's right. Uh, T-Mobile's getting. I'm getting a cut of that sweet sweet ad money. <laughs> yeah, so they, the the uh, T-Mobile uh, had this thing called T-Mobile Tuesdays, uh, and um, they uh, they were offering a free movie ticket for Star Wars. At that moment so um i was in brooklyn at the time it was a nice 60 degree day in the middle of december which was amazing so um uh i got the ticket went to go watch that movie uh and then uh, in manhattan and then on my way back that's when while i was looking down on my gps quickly i had the right of way um it was a green light everything but uh i looked down on my gps so i was doing the speed limit and an old lady T-bones me and she she crashes into my right arm and basically my arm is fractured uh like so much so my bone is sticking out my uh i have my watch i don't know where it is right now but uh i kept that watch as a reminder the leather on the inside is covered in blood like uh yeah it's 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 quite gory um and i i I have this vivid memory i was screaming uh like the moment, I don't even remember seeing these people. Like uh, who who hit me? Um, but yeah, someone called nine one one. This was in Brooklyn. Um, yeah, I remembered everything all the way until I was in the hospital and the police were questioning me uh, about hey what happened. And then I specifically told my um, the doctor, um, not the doctor. I don't know who they were. The the EMT guys, I guess. I said hey, no drugs no drugs. Uh, and apparently while I was talking to the police officers, they injected me with morphine or heroin. I don't think it's heroin, <laughs> heroin. whatever it is. Oxycontin but the, or one of those uh, opioids. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, what, whatever it was. And then I was just like, Oh my God. <laughs> so, so I, I, I was uh, sort of dozing out as I was giving my statement uh, and what they did within that moment, because it was the evening, it was after Christmas, like Eve, um, so 26th or 27th December, not, not many doctors available. So they gave me that so that in the short time that they, uh, they did that, they actually removed my bones, which was completely shattered in four pieces. They, they removed it and they tried to like put it together like Lego pieces. Uh, and then they wrapped it in bandages. Oh my God. I, I didn't feel anything then, but that was probably the worst night of my life because I was not allowed to move my hand and they couldn't do anything other than just say, don't move your hand. And imagine being there from 6 uh, p.m. that night, 6, 7 p.m. on that night to the next day until 12 a.m. You could not move your arm. In the middle of the night, I just had this phantom movement. Like, And, and I'm a fidgety guy. I, I move my legs, move my hands. I have the restless leg syndrome, whatever you call it. Um, and in the middle of the night, I remember like around 1 or 2 o'clock, I just – lifted my hand up all uh, on its own because i i just i just couldn't i i, I guess it was like my mind's reaction that i still have no. my heart oh my god that was on a that was that was the one time where i would say my worst worst like beyond the the accident the adrenaline all that kicked in so actually was less painful than when i just lifted my arm up oh, oh my, my god, god that was 
That was a horrible. So you yeah. just had that moment where you're like, <sighs> <laughs> I internal remember that. scream. Oh, I actually screamed out loud. And oh, I woke yeah, up. I, of course. <laughs> That's what everybody wants to hear while they're sleeping. Just somebody shrieking in the other room. <laughs> um, all right. So you quickly learned the joys and the pain of motorcycles. Your story is infinitely cooler than mine. First of all, it wasn't your fault. Second of all, it was a real motorcycle. Third of all, you handled it like a badass. <laughs> I did none of those things. Um, but so this story got you interested in the idea of, okay, motorcycles, perhaps there's some room to improve. When did you start getting with the, the idea that, um, you know, you could build tech for motorcycles or motorcyclists? When did that seed plan itself? That's a good question. So I was studying aerospace engineering. I came to the U.S. to, to pursue that career. Uh, specifically so that I could build uh, or work on flying uh, tech, like specifically flying cars. Uh, sooner or later, I figured out that no matter what we do, we cannot have a traditional uh, flying uh, car as we so thought. Um, in fact, I think the closest we could get to a future of flying cars would be where uh, if you imagine the the electric car of today, basically all of the components that make the electric car are in the base of the car uh, mm. with the wheels and such. So, mm. and if you can think of, imagine a small box that goes on top of it, that's what people will be able to buy, customize, do whatever they want to do. So imagine there's a box on a skateboard just going around and that in and of itself is a, is a big expensive piece. Uh, you can buy that, and then what would happen eventually is, let's say you want to get from New York to Philadelphia, which by road would be two hours, but by air would be maybe an hour. Uh, you could contact an on-demand drone from that same company, um, and then that drone will come attached to the top of that box. The box would detach from the base. The base with all the sensors will just drive away, and this box will take you and drop it on a different base in a different part. So that's where I believe the autonomous flying future might go towards. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's what I wanted to work on. But uh, around that time, so since I got into the space to really disrupt everything, I've always challenged the status quo. Um, and so, so that's, that's where we actually got in with the, uh, with the idea. So, so, so because of that attitude sort of set into me in college, Motorcycling was no different. It was just a matter of it hasn't changed. Let's just be disruptive. Why don't we make something real happen? And then as we were exploring ideas, my accident happened and, and then it made sense. Oh, why don't we make Iron Man's helmet? Why is that not real? Mm -hmm. And then because heads up displays exist in cars, why don't they exist on motorcycles? And so that question Absolutely. really us down the rabbit hole. And they really hadn't up until you came up with it. It doesn't exist anywhere well, else because you'd say it's a super easy thing to imagine at least. So, yeah, so people have made concepts in the same way that nowadays there's a lot of electric car concepts, but they never actually make it to production. Like Rivian, other than Tesla, Rivian is the only second company that has actually gone to production uh, with a prototype. So people have made prototypes, but the, uh, the process of getting them off the ground, getting them uh, certified, going through all that process, learning what to do and what not to do. And, and it's a whole new market. Nobody has done this before. So so there's a learning curve to it. So we learn from the people that have made prototypes. Why did it fail? Why did this not happen? And then try to make the right changes in the right places to see if our recipe works. And, and, and thankfully it has. 
That's awesome. Well, for those who maybe haven't driven a car with a heads-up display, the technology, if you've seen them, I've been in cars like this where it's basically a projector that projects all of the information onto a windshield, and it's incredible because you just look at this little square of your windshield as you're driving, and you have all of the information. You can have your speed limit. You can even have cars to the left of you, to the front of you, behind you. All that stuff in one little grid is amazing. So I completely agree that, especially for motorcycles, it makes incredible sense to have all of that in your helmet. Um, how much cooler would that be? Because I feel like when you are on a motorcycle, if you wear a helmet, you're constantly limited in your vision. That's one thing that people don't necessarily realize. You're limited. You, your peripheral vision is limited. Um, yes, you have mirrors, but it's difficult to keep track of all of those things and to keep track of the road, as your story also illustrates. It's it's hard to manage all of the stuff that you need to do. And you got to couple that with the fact that there are laws about the kind of stuff that you can do, such as you can't have headphones on or you can't be listening to music officially when you're on a motorcycle, even though the crack addicts who are motorcyclists will know that that's probably the most fun thing in the entire world. <laughs> listening to music on a bike or a motorcycle is probably the most fun thing ever. Oh, God, yeah. And that's why companies like Santa Cardo, all of them exist because, you know, that's, that's what people want to do. And so yeah. uh, as long as you can do it safely, and that's that I think is the difference that even the government and and, uh, and regulation hasn't caught up to, is that it's not the information that's distracting. It's the way information is consumed. So information can either inhibit your sense or it can heighten your knowledge of your peripherals by just with the change of medium and where you see it. If you see it on a phone, it's taking your eyes off the road. But if it's on the road through a heads-up display, it can really enhance your view, not only uh, in with the speed limit or speed information, but eventually we also want to be able to recognize uh, vehicles that are swerving way ahead. So almost supplementing uh, the person's vision to let them see more than they normally would as they focus on the road. So are there cameras baked into this thing, front and back? Yeah. What, what kind of sensors do you have in there? So uh, we can't talk too much about that uh, okay. uh, uh, online, <laughs> but um, effectively, <laughs> yes, we have we have gyros, we have cameras. We also, and the cameras are computer vision capable, meaning that we, uh, again, uh, I would not publish this, but basically we want to paint arrows on the road uh, eventually. Or actually, it's fine, I guess, if you want, if you want okay. to. Okay, <laughs> you got to let me know, man, because it's going in. <laughs> Sorry about it. Yeah. So yeah, the, the, the originally when we started this off, we, we wanted to paint, um, uh, the GPS information directly on the road, exactly like you would see in, um, need for speed or, uh, Forza or any of these sure. uh, racing games. It would be so cool. But the immediate challenge that we actually ran into is the frame of reference. So in a, in a driverless car, the camera, is on a fixed frame of reference. Yes, it, it the car moves about, but there's very little movement, and the camera is in the same steady yeah. fixed position in order to uh, correctly recognize the lanes and the roads and the signs and all of that because th they're all in a constant place. On a motorcycle helmet, the person's head is always moving, so the the camera's point of view is always changing. And even with a stereo camera, it's really hard to get all the depth reference right and be able to paint all of those arrows right. Although it, it is a huge next step 
in the, in that computing um, uh, process. Plus, we have a lot less computing power than an autonomous vehicle does because of the limited power that we're able to draw. So we are working on a very advanced computer vision algorithm so that we can we can supplement some of that information and be able to eventually paint the arrows on the road. But for that, we need a bit more data set. Uh, and uh, we, we, but our system at the moment is capable of doing it. It's just not in a moving frame of reference. It can do it in a fixed frame of reference and we're optimizing it to go into moving frame of reference. Sorry if I'm getting too technical. No, that's really, I love that stuff. It's awesome. It, it kind of brings to mind the idea with all of these EVs and autonomous vehicles being produced in general, doesn't yeah. it seem like our roads should have some kind of basic infrastructure, some kind of chip on each side or markers at regular intervals that can easily interface with all of these kinds of tech? Shouldn't that be sort of standardized such that your frame of reference, whatever vehicle, I mean, should be able to be determined, especially when you're in between two markers? That's true. I mean, that so that I believe in the United States at the moment falls a lot on, uh, again, with my limited knowledge within the space, that's vehicle to infrastructure uh, sensors. And that at the moment falls on the governments and the cities to, to take that up. Uh, if it is privatized, then I believe that that would be uh, quite compelling. Um, uh, but uh, I don't believe there might be too much of an incentive at the moment. The only city that I know that has done vehicle to infrastructure uh, sensors is Vegas. And they, they, they have it to a point where um, Audi specifically, at least the Audi that I rented, uh, it could recognize the uh, the stop sign or the, the signal light um, uh, within... Uh, like like it's going to turn red in a couple of seconds so so just like uh, maintain this speed so that you can ma- go there yeah so i think i think that would be um that would fall on the cities at the moment i think yeah. i mean you have to believe that that is what we need to do just from a safety aspect having that kind of information coming in we talk about the internet of things why is it that my refrigerator can know that i need milk but a stop sign can't tell you that you should stop which one of those seems more valuable <laughs> if we're going to be putting chips and everything, why not the most logical things? And it doesn't even have to be a computer, just some kind of RFID or just some sort of sensor, right? It doesn't have to be anything. It doesn't even have to be powered, I don't think, for it to work effectively. Yeah, no, it, it can be very simple. And I agree with you 100%, but I, th- uh, I, I, I guess I don't know. Yeah, so you've got to do an example. You've got to do crazy algorithms to get there in the meantime, which is even cooler and more difficult. Um. So, yeah, talk to me about the, the the laws of this kind of thing. Because, again, I think it's not every state, but in some states you can't have headphones in. Like, what are we not allowed to do currently? You're not allowed to listen to music, but you are. What are the exact regulations that when it comes to information or music or entertainment on a bike or motorcycle? So, uh, I mean, even helmet laws themselves, There's believe it or not, there are states where wearing a helmet is not required which really baffles my mind. Like that's just throwing away your life uh, for nothing. Like, so is there any talk of one day being able to have the helmet communicate with the bike itself? Or do you have to just operate as if it's a completely separate entity? I can definitely talk about that. Yes, we are working with uh, motorcycle companies at the moment actively to integrate our part of our system. So version 2.0 would actually be part of uh, uh, there will be an integrated ECU unit within the bike or something that plugs into a canvas um, output and it'll communicate 
relevant information, like if there is tire pressure information or something else to the helmet, and you can request the voice assistant, hey, what's my tire pressure, where's the, what's my fuel level at? And and it can uh, give you that information so that you can go and uh, do whatever you need to do. So that that is a direct integration that we're working on. So ideally, first, it'll start off with a bike level integration, and then eventually the second part would be canvas. So bikes that didn't come with it, you just plug this in and it's able to draw enough power and, and, and communicate with the helmet. That's so cool. Because the only bikes that I ever rode were old school. And that was a definite concern, especially when I first started riding them. You, you fill it up with gas and then you ride for some hours. And I, I think, when do I need to fill up? I have no idea. It just That happened up. to me as I bought my bike. Like <laughs> I, I don't I, know. When, now, an hour? How many, how many miles do I get? How many gallons does this hold? I don't know. So yeah, the the funny thing is, like, um, uh, I both my bikes. I had a Monster plus the Diablo. Both of them have the Monster had a giant screen, but uh, no fuel gauge. The Diablo has two screens. It even gives me my average fuel consumption, but it doesn't have a fuel gauge to tell me <laughs> how, much how much fuel I have left. <laughs> like, <laughs> why would I need to know what my average fuel consumption? Just tell me right. how much I have left. You get stranded, <laughs> but you know exactly how you got there. That's yeah. <laughs> all that matters. Um, yeah, that sounds cool, though. Getting the integration would be awesome. And, and of course, the feedback as well. Uh, one of the, I don't know if you're familiar with this group, one of the people I've had on the show is Jay Giroux, the founder of uh, Damon Motorcycles. They're making all electric motorcycles. Really cool. One of the most popular episodes that kind of blew up on Reels and on Instagram because nice. the tech is so cool, but their motorcycle has a bunch of sensors that detect collisions in advance and they tell you things built into the bike. So it seems like it would be a really great partnership for you because I'm sure that a bike like that would much more inter easily interface with your tech since the amount of sensors that they're building is, is more advanced. So definitely I should link you guys if you're not familiar with him. I've heard of them, but I've, I have always, uh, I guess we, we just like swing by just like that where we, where we never connect, but, uh, I would love to. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Damon is a good motorcycle company. I've heard of it, but I haven't personally written it. Uh, we're working with more traditional, larger motorcycle companies at the moment, but yeah, I mean, uh, a faster integration would certainly be pretty unique and helpful. I'll be happy to do that. Thanks for um, us. So you never know if I can provide one tiny bit of value. It's the least I can do for all the advice that I get on this show. Um, yeah, so you've, you've got this really cool thing. And it, it does strike a point, which is that I personally am much more interested in augmented reality than I am in uh, VR. Maybe it's yeah. just because I have a deep fear. Can I say hatred of Mark Zuckerberg? I don't know. <laughs> I can say I, a healthy dose of skepticism for the guy. And all of this, it, it's just something that doesn't appeal to me, but AR appeals to me endlessly. The advantage, like, th that concept, I completely, completely believe. And it's just an extension of your phone. Even the new AirPods, the noise canceling, just turning on it, noise canceling, having something in your ear, having an assistant, having music while you're reading and drowning out. You're, you can have an air conditioner right next to you. Like, it just—it's so easy to imagine a future where all of those things are mapped out in front of us, since we already have it on our phone, anyways. So, AR—do you feel that AR is the most exciting part of the future, or do you also think that VR is cool? Thanks, Ross. I mean, that's a good question, uh, and I—I I, I can't agree with you more. I agree that VR is 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 good in a sense of what it. Uh, but it's limited in what it can accomplish per se. Um, 
AR has more practical applications, but both have sort of this uh, this hump to get over, which is mainly the social acceptance hump. Uh, and and tying it back to our, our business and the reason why we picked what we did, which is the motorcycle helmets part, um, there was the Google Glass that launched in 2013, 2014, not yeah. really, or 2015, not familiar, but... Uh, they they when people were wearing it and walking around they were called glass holes. Uh, I remember so, that. Yeah. So uh, and 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 um, uh, the same thing with like anyone who was I believe there was an airline I forgot which one that tried to wear uh, Hololens uh, to try to talk to people and people were just uncomfortable with that. There's there's this and VR it, it VR is more acceptable because it's almost like a solo thing. You're doing it on your own and and it can be and and it has gaming applications at the moment. So that doesn't necessarily need that social aspect to get over. But augmented reality, despite of whatever the the factors it has to do, it has to get over that. So we looked at that and the reason why we pick motorcycle helmets is because people already wear this whether or not there's an ar element to this or not doesn't make anything any difference and in fact it it is one exception where an augmented reality product becomes cooler like if you wear glasses and wear ar you become a glass hole if if you do that with anything else that the People are just like uncomfortable, but you do that to a motorcycle and they're like, wow, that's cool. That's Iron Man's helmet. That's whatever. Like, you know, that, that, that I think is the only exception. And that's why we like working on, uh, uh, in, on the product that, that we do. And I think there is still until another, I, I, I don't want to make a judgment, but maybe five, 10 years away from everybody just accepting that augmented reality is a thing or that VR is a thing and it's normal. Um, yeah, that, that those are my genuine thoughts. I, I I really believe that AR has huge applications, but at the moment everything is it's nice, it's great, it's cool, but I don't necessarily need it. So I think if anyone is working in AR stuff, they have to be working on things that will make a big difference. Whether it is solving distracted writing or something something that without it, people people can't can't live without it because that, that, that's what made phones the phone revolution in the early 2000s blow out is that without it they just didn't have an alternative it was going back to the computer doing something being able to send an email while you were at a lunch that was revolutionary so we got to we got to focus on those things rather than fringe applications like oh i can go and shop at walmart on on uh, <laughs> on the metaverse that that doesn't add any value or i can buy a 500,000 plot of land next to snoop dogg well, what value does that really add? I know that whole thing is, I don't use the word often, but very cringe. <laughs> it's very, very, very cringe to spend any amount of money on that. It's just, I would never personally do it. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm missing out on billions of potential dollars, but I would never, ever personally invest in any of that stuff. I, I don't see yeah. the value there. And, I and you, do, bring up, I agree you bring up a really good point about because we we see tech in some cases and that's the weird thing about tech in some cases it's futuristic in some cases it's cool it's tron it's all of these things blade runner things that we like in other cases it's weird and creepy and dystopian i'm not quite sure why i think an ar motorcycle helmet is really cool and the, the facebook vr thing is not i don't know why there's such a huge gap between them maybe because we know that meta will spy on you and record every movement and they'll track your retina and they'll do things that you can't even conceive of them do you put this on and it's just going to mine data in ways that you can't even comprehend 
Yeah. That's you know that that's going to happen. They're not going to put anything on your body that's not going to mine your data in ways that you can't even begin to comprehend. Things that you don't even think are important. It's like, oh, the distance between your retinas down to nanometer precision is going to be the identification of the future. Who knows what's going to happen, but it, it can't be good, I think. But it is interesting that when it comes to real life, there aren't many situations where people naturally have some kind of headset on their head. A motorcycle helmet is one example where there is a sort of screen in front of you, there is the stuff around you, and it's one environment where you would have that naturally. And there aren't really many other examples of that in life in general where you would just have that there. Exactly. So it's, it's I guess people o- overlook it or overskip it like... Um, I don't want to call names, but Magic Leap or anyone else that are working in the AR space, it's it's too niche of a product for them. So the, everybody's, everybody's trying to go after, oh, the platform, the platform. But what, what uses a platform when nobody cares about using it? It's almost like they're, they're trying to do the iPhone and the App Store thing, just leap ahead into the future and expect that everything will come on. But I, AR is not at that point yet. You, We have to make it purposeful and limited to whatever industry that we're working on in order for it to be maximizing its potential. It's not a, we can't just throw, make a one size fits all situation and expect, yeah, the, the, this is going to work everywhere. So let's just, let's just let the people figure out when it'll go. That's why it'll take a lot of time to integrate still. So unless we have like purpose driven entrepreneurs, one of you guys was listening to the podcast, go out and make AR fit the purpose, like, like Cinderella shoe that's that's what's really going to drive this industry forward. I think you're absolutely right. And along those lines, how did you take the steps from having this idea into making it a reality? That's a great point. So first, I when I came up with the idea, it was with my friend at the time who also had a motorcycle accident about 10 years ago. And he was actually, I got lucky with him because he was working on augmented reality products since the days of Nokia. So there was, uh, he was developing the cube to be shown on a regular Nokia phone back in, um, a non-smartphone. Uh, and so he's been in the industry at that point for around eight, nine years already. Um, he was the first hire at four different AR VR startups. So together we just wanted to see, Hey, let's make the Iron Man's helmet real. But before we make the helmet, let's figure out the tech. Like, uh, so he built a, an operating system for about six months time um, to figure out, can we do the arrows on the road thing? Can we just test it out on the computer? Is this even possible? So we collected some data, built all of that in. And then while that was happening, I wanted to test out uh, and see if we could make this thing a possibility by working with other companies or if other companies wanted this tech directly from us. Um, we met with a surgeon uh, who said that um, they would actually prefer to have these in the form of glasses. Um, so we sort of made a prototype version of it where it was a really bulky set where we had like this uh, small pair of glasses and a Samsung Galaxy phone, which was running our OS. Um, and we kind of showed that off to them. Uh, they were interested. Then they made an introduction to another venture capital guy who's way ahead in in, in his uh, 
investment. They invest in Series A. And that person made an introduction to Boost VC, our very, very first investor. So we pitched. Um, uh, I don't know if I should share this, but basically, uh, while I was pitching, I was in India at the time. Uh, I was visiting my parents, and for the call. I um I had to look professional, so I just wore a nice shirt, and underneath I was wearing underwear. <laughs> so, right. That was that, that was about, yeah. Anytime I, I that was the only time where I was like, okay, I just need to be camera ready. So underneath, no, no matter what happens, it, it doesn't really matter. That's right. I haven't so, worn pants for years, so it's okay. <laughs> so um, yeah, and then I gave them that interview in the mid- middle of the night. They really liked my thing, so so we. Uh, we uh, got our first investment from them. So together, me and my co-founder, we he was in New York, I was here, I was in India, uh, and we both moved to San Francisco to 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 work on this. And they gave us the money so that we could actually build out a full helmet uh, within three months, show it around, get it off the ground. Uh, so we took it to a couple of helmet companies. Uh, we built the prototype, took it to investors, took it to a couple of helmet companies, told them, hey, can we buy your helmets? And actually, one of the helmet companies said, Rather than you buying our helmets to make this on your own, why don't you sell that tech to us? And so that's where sort of the first integration happened where we figured out rather than making our own helmets, we could go and um, be Intel where we just make the tech alone, sell it to companies like HP, Compaq, whoever wants like to buy it. a licensing arrangement they- of some kind? Yeah, it's it's a little bit more uh, it's 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 more involved because we don't want to lose the quality control. So we have restrictions around how the design of the thing needs to be there. And these companies they don't have the expertise of augmented reality products. So what they're good at is making good helmets. But um, so we sort of integrate with them. We tell them, hey, uh, this is where the electronics should be. This is the difference. Because if the cable lengths are long, then there could be a lag between information shown. So so we're very heavily involved in the design process. Or like Bluetooth. Yeah. So the Bluetooth you know, if your system, headphones don't connect, you're like, come on, damn it. <laughs> do, 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 do. No. Yeah. So we, we want to make sure that we. Speed we, is a we, factor here. Yeah, so we, 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 we try to make sure that we are very heavily involved in the design process. They're responsible for making sure that it passes security and uh, all the safety regulations and all of that, but we want to make sure that the end user has the best technical exp- experience. So um, so we're working on that still in terms of like making that less involving so that we can help spread this to as many helmet companies as possible, but at the moment we do get tend to get involved in the beginning. That's so great. So approaching the idea of venture capital or investors in general, that's a very scary step for many people. Uh, and obviously, it's also difficult. There's pros and cons of doing it, as anybody who's looked into it will know. Uh, what do you think about your idea? What was it that attracted investment at that early stage? What was it that you had that made them want to invest in you, do you think? That's a very good question. So especially even with a small proof of concept stage, investors still look heavily on the founders. They want to know that the founders are. um, So uh, I don't want to put anyone down, but basically from an investor standpoint, I believe one of the tests that investors do is if they know information more than you, they're unlikely to invest. You need to be the master of your trade. So there, there cannot be any holes that are that are questioned around you in order to 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 get things. Uh, yeah, so so I w- I would 
I would focus mostly on knowing what you do best. And and in people can see through whether are you passionate about this? Are you going to because going is going to get so I'll give you an example from from our perspective um, and uh, from my engineering college. So I took up aerospace engineering. Guess how many people drop off after the gauntlet, which is around the fourth semester? Well, if I had to guess, I would say, look at the person to the left of you. Look at the person to the right of you. Both of them will be gone. <laughs> yes, uh, very much so. So our drop-off rate was about 87% okay. after the gauntlet from the aerospace engineering the program. <laughs> I love, it's, I love stuff it's, like it just It just like really takes a beating off of you. So It just must be what, really what tough. Kind of, it's extremely tough. Like people, people assume that, and, 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 and the people that actually survive that it, and what happens with the gauntlet, every single one basically loses hope. Like you're just like, Oh my God, there's so much new things. Am I even more? You start to question your self worth. You start to do all of that. But the only thing when I, when you're actually out of fuel that gets you through is your true passion. If there's something deeper and meaningful that'll carry you through that. And that's, those are the only 13% that make through. That's about the same thing in founders thing. Everyone, the beginning of everything is always great, but you will as a founder face issues. We almost ran out of money once and we actually did. We were running on fumes yet me and my co-founder, we persevered and we, we eventually got through that and we actually became a successful company after that. Uh, and and that happened like one year after we started. So around 2018 was when we 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 really were like, we almost were about to sign a deal with a VC who backed out at the last minute uh, for whatever reasons. But um, yeah, that was that was devastating, and it happens to everyone. So investors want to know that they're investing in founders, not just the ones that know the information, but that you're passionate, that that you will be the one that can, when times get tough to a point where you can't see the future, like nothing is happening. You're literally throwing darts in the dark that you even have the power to throw multiple darts in the dark. That's, that's what you got to convey. And that will only come down to how you yourself, how, how, how true are you? Is this, is this some, is this a project you're doing for money or is this something that you're doing because you genuinely want to do this? That makes sense. How many times going through the gauntlet in aerospace engineering school did you hear the joke? It is rocket science. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I uh, hundreds, I, thousands. Uh, is there bumper stickers, uh, t-shirts? I don't think that we we we've had anything there, but uh, people around me always tend to point out. Well, this isn't rocket science. They're like, he is a rocket scientist. I'm a dad now, so that's the only kind of joke I'm capable of making anymore. I, I've, <laughs> my brain has switched. It's bad. Um, yeah, that. I mean, I can only imagine. I've never done anything like that. I, I doubt that many, by definition of our listeners, would have done something similar. So I have mad respect. And obviously, if you are a rocket scientist, that's... It's pretty hard for a VC to argue with you at that point, I suppose, if you've passed the gauntlet and come out on the other side. Unlikely yeah, they would it, know more than you at that point, right? It, it, yeah, and, and it's specific to, to the thing. It's it's. I was always passionate about cars and motorcycles, so which is why I stuck to the automotive industry. Uh, so that's something that I'd say. But at the same time, if you give me crypto or or something else that I'm not really passionate about, I, I really can't. And, and, and that's why augmented reality is not something – that I mean, I like the industry and all of that, and and I, I consider myself a jack of all trades. I try to involve myself there, but my sorry about that. 
sorry. Zoom light. Uh, yeah, let me just mute this. Focus. There you go. Yeah. So, um, yeah, where were we? Uh, we're talking about rocket scientists and venture capitalists. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You consider yourself uh, a jack of all trades, but. Uh, yeah, so it's a matter of like I try to apply whatever I I see. I try to see through the lens of does it make sense for the automotive industry or not, and then then I try to apply it. That's that's really where my focus comes in. Cool. So you've been at this particular project for four years now. Um, yeah, four five years actually. Five I think years. December twenty sixteen to now. And you're going to bring the product out next year. Is that still the case? Yes, we're we're okay. we're excitedly looking at uh, uh, you, you. You can look at the our first integration, which will be quite big news uh, over the next over the next year. Nice. How much stress do you have on a daily basis right now? At the moment, I'm quite stressed out because the last two years, from a hardware startup standpoint, has been unprecedented. Um, for example, one of our biggest investors is the retired CFO of Intel, uh, and he's been in the industry obviously for since the 90s uh in intel specifically um and he was responsible for he, he's looked at the semiconductor boom all the way in asia to today and the current political situation everywhere nobody predicted the i mean i guess people did but i wasn't i ne never necessarily saw the russia ukraine war to be uh detrimental to our business which which is a niche frontier technology company but it is, and 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 that really set off a, a chain reaction for um, new economic blocks. The 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 entire ground underneath most companies is shifting, and and it has to settle all while everybody's going through a potential recession, which means that growth is going to be slow, and 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 so it's a matter of survival. It's 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 companies will never be the same as they were before COVID. That there's there's going to be a whole new world that everyone has to explore and and figure out. Yeah, I'm with you. Have you heard of a book or read it called Homo Deus by any chance? I have not. I can't recall the author. I just picked it up. I just started reading it. Uh, so I'm not going to try to figure out the name because I can't remember it. But it's about the future of humans and you know Homo sapien becoming Homo Deus, basically human as God, talking about overcoming death, uh, predictions of the future. I think it was released in 2015 and. Peter Thiel and a lot of these big institutional investors, their number one objective is to try to live forever, which is not a scary thought at all. <laughs> uh, anyway, we, we would love Peter Thiel to be immortal, let me just say. Um, but it's uh, an interesting point because the book came out in 2015 and it talks a lot about the history of humanity and how much time in humanity's history was spent trying to get rid of disease and trying to get rid of famine. And, and we're better off now in all of those metrics than at any point in human history. Basically, nobody dies almost around the world, very few people compared to any time in history die of actual famine or starvation. And even in the, the poorest, uh, sorry, even in the richest countries, the poorest people, they don't starve as a result of being poor. They still somehow have food. So a lot of those problems have been solved. And there's quite a large section at the very beginning of the book talking about pandemics and our relationship to diseases. 2015, this book is released. <laughs> 
And it says, thankfully, scientists are getting so good at dealing with, uh, with new viruses and new bacteria. We're coming with great solutions. We have better tech than ever. So it's extremely unlikely that a virus will ever sweep the, <laughs> the human race again. And we'll be really equipped to deal with it because vaccines are here. And I'm sitting there reading that whole thing like, oh, God, you, <laughs> you missed a pretty big chunk of the future. Yes, the vaccines are here. No, people refuse to take them. You totally missed that one. That's the problem with yeah. trying to predict the future in general, though. You never know what little thing is going to throw a wrench in everything. Very much. That's why I definitely question the future of a driverless car, because regardless of how cool and amazing everything is, it's just it's just so far out there to a point where it, what happens if you're in a driverless car and it hits? Uh, it's in a situation where... It definitely has to hit something. There's a mother and a baby right, on the, the sidewalk. Harvard ethics question, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and it's a matter of, or the motorcycle is there. Like, ah, who's going to make the judgment? Why, like, are we comfortable with the computer making a judgment that today this guy is definitely going to die, regardless of what happens? Like, that, that that's not something that we're comfortable with. And I, I feel that no matter how much of a, techno a technological leap we make and how perfect they are, in those situations, we'd never be able to accept that a car is the one that's, that you're going to hold that responsible, that individual car, the AI. And then it would just, it's just, just too dystopian uh, uh, in a sense for us to to comprehend. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. And because that is obviously the beginning of, of if you get a law degree, that's class number one is the train track problem. Do you go left or do yeah. you go right to say, you know, kill five people or kill one person? And these kinds of questions, they seem very cold and harsh. And obviously, if you're optimizing in a computer sense in Silicon Valley, then you're going to optimize for, you know, what is the greatest good for the greatest number of people. But then it becomes a philosophical question. And then who is underserved? Who is the greatest number of people? How does that affect things like race and minorities? All of these other questions get roped into it. And it, one of the most important things to remember is that you're signing away what is going to be the terms and conditions of a driverless car even if the ai makes a mistake i hereby irrevocably irrevocably sign away all of my rights i am responsible for anything the car does legally i am not holding tesla I mean, that's the agreement you will sign and will that hold up in court yeah it's it's a nightmare it's a mess do you yeah. think that it's still that it's inevitable though regardless are we just going to do it anyways or you really think it's going to not happen because of that that's a good question. Uh, if the only way driverless cars can, uh, maybe it might be in a part way that it, it could become legal. Like you can only be driverless on the highways where there's no human interaction. But in the cities, definitely to avoid liability, I think that you would have, you, you can have driverless assists, but the end of the day people have to be the one that's driving it so i think i think we, if there's any ratification to the tesla autopilot system that they're doing at the moment uh, it should be that within city limits you are not allowed to use autopilot it, you should not be able to drive within the city without a person to be responsible for making that judgment and decision cuz you, you definitely don't want a computer making a decision or blame a sensor for for a person losing their life that the people shouldn't be test subjects like lives shouldn't be test subjects like like we're guinea pigs in the in the city for tesla or any company that's doing that testing yeah, and all of that was covered by 2001 a space odyssey was it a sensor malfunction or dot 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 <laughs> 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 you know, the sensor malfunction how convenient 
Uh, yeah, it's some scary stuff. So, I mean, obviously for your path, getting a little bit off track here, uh, for your journey in the next five years, what would you like to see? Would you like to see your tech in every commercial motorcycle helmet sold? Do you think that that's realistic? Because it seems well, to me like it could be. I don't see why anybody wouldn't want it. So, yeah, I mean, ideally, we obviously our growth goal would be to to be able to democratize this tech so that everyone can use it. But I completely understand from a perspective, let's say you have a vintage motorcycle, you just want to go for a motorcycle ride. I don't want to I don't want anyone to be forced to use the system, especially if, if it's like I myself, like if I'm if I if I, if I have like a old 50s motorcycle and I just want to feel like I'm in the 50s, I might I might ride with an unsafe motorcycle helmet that's from the 50s uh, just to get that sense of experience and stuff. Uh, but overall, if it's for daily commutes or something you know heavily, you rely on tech um, constantly. Then, then this should be definitely be an option. That's that's where I'd want to go. But most importantly, I'd like to see governments adopt a, the standard, not just for motorcycles, but um, within the tech. Like they they should make they should understand that people end up using technology on their ride, whether they like it or not, and somehow make it so that the information that is displayed should not be inhibiting people's views or or make it safer so that the way that information is received is 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 done safely and it should be regulated around the world because uh god forbid we get um apple carplay and then all of a sudden we get bombarded with ads as you're driving trying to take your eyes off the road so that you can focus on the screen that that's that that because ways does that all the time so, so it's just something that that i hope that we get around yeah that'd be great right but of course, the assumption is that just because you're driving a motorcycle doesn't mean you know where you're going all the time. The same reason that GPS is useful in a car, it's the same reason that you would want it in a motorcycle. And and For sure. one thing about motorcycles we know, it's that split second that matters. You look down, you glance down, that's the split second something happens. Happened for you. Uh, my accident as well happened in a split second. It wasn't a series of mistakes. It was one tiny little thing that happened once. I pushed just slightly too much pressure with my left hand. That's it. And that changes everything. So in this game, microseconds matter. And that's something that I think anybody can get behind, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Sweet. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're approaching the end of the hour here. So um, I'd like you to wrap it up if you can. So what do you want to promote or what do you want to draw people towards? How can they get involved? How can they support what you're doing or follow you or be ready for when you are launching? Oh, that's awesome. So we are on uh, etho.io, um, www.etho.io. Please go there, join our program, join our beta program if, if you want to be a beta tester. Or if you're interested in investing in the company, you can come talk to us there, connect with us, and, and one of our people will reach out to you. Uh, in addition, please follow us on social media, Ethomotive, E-T-H-O-M-O-T-I-V-E. Um, we sort of wanted to be uh, a dictionary term of automotive awakening. Uh, we we definitely believe that it, it it's going to be the future of how we interact. This is going to be a milestone marker for motorcycling as in pre-Etho and post-Etho. Um, so hopefully you can get there. That's cool. And I'm going to be the first one. I'm going to be in your beta test and I'm just going to wear it walking around. <laughs> well, actually you could, you could run GPS. One of our investors actually tries to ride with it with a unicycle, believe it or not. Hey, I unicycled for many years. That's what I'm talking about, right? I need GPS on my unicycle. Let's think a little bit more. Let's expand our vision here a little bit, Krishna. We've got to, 
<laughs> motorcycles is too narrow. Indeed. No. I mean, there is this, um, there are at least two of these devices that I've seen. One is a balance on um, a go-kart wheel in the middle and a balancing skateboard. Have you seen that one? Oh, yeah. Those terrify me. I will kill <laughs> myself if I ever own one of those. I'm never going to do it. I've, I've they seen look awesome, though. They're fast. Yeah, they, and then there's this other one which which looks Tron like, where where it's like a giant wheel somehow. It's with a wheel cover and it goes right in and between your two legs. Pedals on this. Yeah, I, I saw a guy. Yeah. I, I went bike riding with a guy who has one of those, and he was going forty miles an hour. Crazy! It's, it's insane. Like I, I, I'm in a motorcycle, but that seems far more ex- because that's even less balanced. Like if you, if you go over a pebble, you could just basically wipe I out. I would never, never <laughs> ever. I'll stick to regular unicycles. I like e-bikes, but not that. Ugh. Yeah. Awesome. So you actually unicycle, unicycle. Oh yeah, I unicycled very seriously for a very long period of time. Uh, I was the first person ever. So I, I grew up in Colorado. I was the first person ever to unicycle down Steamboat Mountain that they'd ever wow. seen. So you can take gondolas up in the winter and you go skiing or snowboarding down the mountain. But they leave the gondola open in the summer, and then you can take your bike up, and they have expert trails, and they have easy trails. It's amazing because it's just 45 minutes of just straight downhill. I brought my unicycle, and I was the first person they'd ever seen that tried to do that. And I had to actually debate with the managers before they would let (laughs) me up there because my unicycle didn't have a brake on it, and they couldn't conceive of the idea that you could do something like that without a brake. So I had to show them. I said, no, the the wheel is attached to the pedals. It can't go if the pedals don't go. So brakes, while helpful, aren't necessary. So I had to explain, and I had to jump up onto picnic tables and jump off, and I jumped onto a boulder and off (laughs) and did all this stuff to show them that I could do it. And they finally, they said, okay, but I think immediately after, they probably went racing back to their legal team to more or less outlaw that practice. They said, we can't officially stop you, but in our hearts, we know it's a bad idea, but I did it and it it was amazing. And I could actually do stuff on a unicycle. I could go down much more difficult stuff on a unicycle than I could on a bike by a lot. I could go down anything on a unicycle. Wow. I could go off six foot jumps. I could go down really steep stuff. And I, and because you can also hop up stuff, I could hop up, you know, 12 inches at a time, hop up boulders. So I got very, very into it. Ross is a unique, this is your talent. This is your passion in a sense. So it makes sense. Like, like we, we'll definitely get you a smart helmet so that you can ride with your unicycle yes. safely. <laughs> That's and, great. <laughs> Further cementing my popularity for all of eternity. <laughs> <laughs> the only one unicyclist in the world who has a smart helmet. Who Nothing can do things. says cool like that. Uh, <laughs> well, awesome, Chris. That's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm sure you got a million things to do. So we'll wrap up the official episode. Um, and with that, the official episode is, is over. 